I believe we have a, a slide of Aja Bibi. Um, let's see, do we have a picture of that first image? It's coming, gotcha. Um, Aja Bibi is a uh, Roman Catholic Christian, a wife and mother in Pakistan, and with a number of other local women, Aja was working on a farm of a Muslim landowner. Uh, her family in a village of over 1,500 families, Aja's family is one of only three families who are Christians. And it was during their work on the farm that uh, there was an argument. It began as an argument over a bowl of water that Aja had drunken from and the uh, Muslim women, some of them refused to drink after an unclean kufar, an unclean unbeliever had drunk from it. Uh, there was also some property dispute, I understand. And during an argument, a number of these women were pressuring Aja to renounce Christianity and to accept Islam. It was on the 19th of June, 2009, that there was this intense discussion among these women about issues of faith. And the Muslim women told Aja about Islam, and according to sources, Aja responded by telling the Muslim women that Jesus Christ is alive. She said, Our Christ sacrificed his life on the cross for our sins. Our Christ is alive. And upon hearing this response, the other women became enraged, and they began to beat Aja. And then some men took her, and they locked her in a room, Aja's daughter describes watching the men tear clothes from her mother's body. Later, the men announced from mosque loudspeakers that Aja would be punished by having her face blackened and being paraded through the village on a donkey. Yet police uh, intercepted Aja before those plans could come to pass. They took her into protective custody at first, and Christians... Uh, begged the police not to file blasphemy charges as the local imam who was not there to witness events had claimed that she had blasphemed the prophet Muhammad. So Christians begged, begged the police not to file blasphemy charges, but the police claimed they had to go forward because of pressure from local religious leaders. And after a lengthy trial on November 8, 2010, the judge sentenced Aja Bibi to death by execution for her crime. Even some Pakistani Muslim leaders spoke out against this death sentence. The governor of Punjab province, himself a Muslim, Salman Tasir, spoke out repeatedly in favor of a pardon, clemency for Aja Bibi, and for a re-examination of Pakistan's blasphemy laws, but Governor Tasir After meeting with Aja in prison that January, he was assassinated for his support of this Christian woman. Shabazz Bhatti, the only Christian member of Pakistan's cabinet, also spoke out on behalf of Aja Bibi, and on March 2, 2011, he too was assassinated for his support of this Christian woman. Currently, her death sentence has been suspended While she awaits appeal, her case is to be seen before the Supreme Court of Pakistan later this week. Followers of Jesus in the United States in 2016 
live in an unprecedented moment of peace and relative religious liberty. What Aja Bibi is experiencing, however, has been the norm throughout much of the world and throughout much of 2,000 years of Christian history. It's what Jesus said would happen, that the church, his followers, his family are persecuted, and these are our family. These are our sisters. These are our brothers. Followers of Jesus always have a price to pay in this lifetime for following Jesus Maybe you don't have somebody stop and detain you for professing faith. Maybe you're not like a Roman Christian who would be forced under pain of execution to offer sacrifices or to offer incense to venerate the emperor. Uh, Perhaps for you, it's the difficulty and struggle of persevering in a difficult marriage because you have to suffer because Jesus has called you to be faithful and therefore to suffer in that difficult relationship. Perhaps it's sacrificially giving of your money, and that's painful because that's lifestyle choices that you're having to make to not live in a certain kind of home, to not drive a certain kind of car because you want to obey Jesus, and there's a cost of discipleship, a cost of following Jesus. Perhaps if you are open and honest about your faith with those around you and you talk about Jesus and you tell people that he's your Savior, there are people who are going to reject you. There are people who are going to distance, put distance between them and you. There is a price that you must pay, Jesus said. It is the norm throughout history, and yet in much of the world today and throughout much of Christian history, the price is much more than financial and relational. Very often the price is to sacrifice your very life, all in the name of Jesus, all because you love him. It's the cost you pay to be his follower. Jesus speaks about this reality. He speaks to a church in Smyrna, modern-day Izmir in Turkey. It was a Greek city. We're going to read Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. This is the word of the Lord Jesus Christ speaking before John, the disciple, in this vision. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you. And you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you a crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. What is Jesus saying to the church here? Jesus is telling us that we're going to have to suffer for him. There will be no avoiding it. They were in Smyrna. It was a center of Roman emperor worship. A couple decades before this letter was written, Emperor Tiberius had granted Smyrna the sole privilege of building a temple in his honor and the honor of his mother Livia, 
According to Tacitus, a Roman historian, Smyrna beat out ten other cities in the competition to build this great temple to the emperor. Smyrna was, had been the birthplace of Homer. It was a city of 200,000 people, but by the end of the first century, it was a center for the cult of emperor worship in the Roman Empire. And Jesus is speaking to this small band, a couple dozen Christians perhaps, in this town, telling them that they are going to suffer religious persecution. And specifically, he says, they're going to suffer at the hands of who? The hands of religious people. Both emperor worship type religion, the civil religion of the culture, and also he speaks of the Pharisaical Judaism. Uh, You know, these Christians were primarily Jewish, and they considered their Christian worship to be the continuation of Jewish worship, the continuation of the synagogue. But there was another synagogue in town, and it was a whole lot larger. It was a whole lot wealthier, and it had a whole lot more members, and it had a whole lot more power and influence and wealth. And they considered these followers of Jesus, these Jewish Christians, to be heretics, to be stamped out, to be persecuted. Note the reference to a synagogue not of God but of Satan. It was religious people who would use their power and influence to make followers of Jesus suffer. You're going to suffer, Jesus says, most of all at the hands of religious people. You know, there are new atheists over the last 20 years, uh, Hitchens and Harris and Dawkins, who have made the argument that religion takes ordinary uh, conflicts between people groups, between cultures, between individuals, and it makes those conflicts ten times worse because it, it absolutizes them. It's not just that you're doing things different from me. You're doing things that are demonic and evil. It's not just that you're uh, somebody that I don't get along with. You're of the devil. You're of Satan. And, 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 and in all honesty, there is nothing in the Bible that would undermine that argument. In fact, very often it is religious people who were Jesus' opponents. And here... Jesus speaking to the angel of the church in Smyrna, saying it's religious people who are going to make your lives absolutely miserable, insufferable, intolerable, pain and suffering. Uh, You know, unless that religion has as its absolute principle a God who dies for his enemies, uh, it is going to absolutize those conflicts. And that's why the Bible tells us to expect the worst persecution to become from those who are the most religious, be it a religious religion or be it a secular religion. How many died during the French Revolution in the name of absolute reason? How many died in Pol Pot's killing fields in in Cambodia in the name of atheism? How many in the name of atheism died under Stalin's pogroms and genocide in eastern Ukraine? It's any absolute viewpoint has that potential. And we're being told that that's where the pain and the suffering will come from the most. And it's still happening. It's the norm in much of the world today that followers of Jesus suffer very physically and tangibly for following him. Jesus had said, in this life, you, my followers, will suffer persecution. Question for you. Do you love your Savior enough to be willing to suffer for him. Do you love your Savior enough to be willing to lose your home, to be willing to lose your reputation, to be willing to lose your spouse or your children, your family, the things that next to God are the absolute most important to you? Are you willing, if he calls you to that, 
to suffer that kind of persecution because this band of Christians in Smyrna was facing that very tangible and real choice. Peter wrote, Don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice that you share in the sufferings of Christ. We've got another picture here. This is Roshana. She is a uh, Christian in Sri Lanka, and it was in May of 2014 that she described what happened. She says it was a Thursday. We were in a prayer meeting in another believer's house in a place called Wategama. At around two in the afternoon, she writes, just when I was about to come out of the house, I got a call from a stranger. This stranger said she wanted to come over to my house and she wanted to ask for my prayers. At three o'clock p.m., the caller, it was a mother and her three daughters, arrived. But before praying, I talked to them about Jesus Christ, my Savior. And just when I was about to pray for them, five Buddhist monks arrived at my home. They surrounded the house with a mob of young people. They took their cameras out and recorded a video of us from the outside. And with the camera rolling, they trespassed on my land. They came over to my house where I was, and they slapped me, and they hit me. And these monks forced me to go with them to the temple. I refused, and so they dragged me to the temple instead. They stole my bag. They stole my Bible. They took everything I had. They poured a bottle of water on top of my head, and a man came in, and he tried to strangle me. They told me that they were going to kill me. I told them that Jesus was there for me, and so I have no problem with dying. They saw that I was being stubborn, and they tried to scold me, but there were no tears in my eyes. Even though I was alone, I did not have fear. They mocked me, and they cursed me. The monks took my belongings and called my family. They said that they had handed me over to the police. Roshana says this. She says, I've been doing prayer meetings for four years, and nothing like this had ever happened before, but somebody planned this. She says, I'm still going through some trauma, but I know that my God loves me so very much. There is nothing compared to his love. He has changed my life, and I want to see other people's lives being changed by him as well. I want to see more people redeemed. I was more drawn to Jesus after suffering this incident. I believe that it's given me strength for future ministry. After what happened that day, that Thursday, that the fear that I had from society and people is gone completely. Now I have no fear at all. Jesus tells us we're going to suffer for him. It was true then. It's true now. If you follow Jesus, you're going to pay a price, a price at the hands of people very often religious people. And Jesus is saying, if you love me, if you're wild about me, you're going to have to suffer for my name. Jesus says you're going to have to suffer. What else does he say? He says, do not fear what they can do to you. Don't fear. Why not? First of all, he says this is testing. That's the term he uses, uh, a testing, meaning that it's overruled ultimately by God. It's used by the, the potter to shape the clay. It's used by the refiner to get the impurities out of the metal. You know, suffering is never a good thing. Uh, suffering is not in God's original design. It's an effect of the fall. And the Bible certainly does not call on you to give thanks to God for your suffering, but it does call upon us to give thanks to God 
in our suffering, uh, because it's in our suffering that we see Jesus, the, the path of healing. You know, the Bible never tells us exactly why we're suffering, specifically in any given incident, and, and you know, the devil and his angels will try to whisper all sorts of things to you that are usually lies, but, uh, but there is one thing the Bible does tell us, that, that God overrules it, that God uses it, that, that he redeems our suffering because his path of healing is always the Via Dolorosa. It's always the path of suffering. The way of salvation is always the way of grief. And Jesus allows us, gives us the privilege to enter into his sufferings, to share in his sufferings in order to test and refine our faith in him, to tear down our pride and our self-reliance and grow in its place the likeness of Jesus who suffered all for the sake of love. Paul writes in Colossians of filling up in his flesh what is still lacking in the affliction of Christ for the sake of his body, the church. You see, you have a dad. If you are a follower of Jesus, you have a dad, a father in heaven who loves you immensely. He's wild about you, and he is not going to waste a single tear that falls from your eye. He is not going to waste your sorrow and your pain. Don't you waste them. Don't waste your suffering. It's in your tears that you can meet Jesus. And you can meet him in a way that perhaps you've never met him before. Jesus says, don't fear what they can do to you. It's testing. When you go to the doctor, you submit to a test. You submit to tests in order to find out what's really going on inside of you. I've been submitting to lots of tests. Uh, I just had seven more this week. I got two more in the next two weeks. Jesus says that this persecution, this pressure that you're feeling, this suffering that the persecuted church suffers is a test. You know, you can feel fine when you go to the doctor, but you submit to the test, and weeks later you find out that there's something growing inside of you that if allowed to continue growing will eat you up and consume you and destroy you. And the test is what allows you to address it and to live. Without that test, you'd be a goner. Tests are for our benefit. It's the same thing in school. Uh, You say, hey, Greg, I am awesome at trigonometry. I am the trigonomist of trigonomists. I am the trigonometry guru. I am president, CEO, lord, and master of trigonometry are us. I am awesome at trigonometry. And then you take the test. And you find out that you maybe don't know so much about trigonometry. The test shows us how really awesome we aren't sometimes, but the test is designed as a learning tool. It's not evaluative as a judgment standard. It's a learning tool to help you figure out where you have room to grow, where you have room to learn. It's an essential part of the growth process. And as Jesus is saying, don't be afraid of what people can do to you, because whatever they do to you, I am not going to waste a single tear Even evil things I'm going to use to grow you because it's all a part of the test. And this is so you can conquer. The language here is of overcoming. You will overcome through these tests. One who overcomes is one who's developed a tenacity, a steadfast readiness to persevere, to remain unmoved in the face of any pressure or human manipulation or opposition, unflinching in the face of the storm. You know, the strongest soul 
is the soul that has suffered in Christ and persevered in suffering when she has stared down the barrel of a gun and stood tall in the face of abuse and cruelty and persevered through the most difficult relationships and said no to ease and comfort and and the American lifestyle in order to say yes to justice and the cause of Christ. That is the strongest of souls, the most alive of souls, the soul that has been tested and she has grown strong in Jesus and close to him and therefore can face anything unafraid. Jesus says, don't fear what they can do. It's testing. What else does he say? He says, don't fear because the testing will be limited. He says, they're going to test you for 10 days. Uh, This is the book of Revelation, highly symbolic probably more than 10 days. 10 days is a symbolic number. It means a a definite but limited amount of time, limited in comparison to what eternity uh, uh, stands before us. Jesus said in Matthew 10, don't fear those who can kill the body but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Jesus says, don't fear what they can do. It's testing, but it's also limited It's not going to last longer than one lifetime. And very often, Jesus grants release from specific trials much sooner. And you can do anything, Jesus says. You can do anything for a brief amount of time. It's not going to last forever. Imagine, if you will, a church that is in solidarity with the persecuted church throughout the world. Uh, I know when I share stories of ISIS beheading people on Libyan beaches, I know that, that, that some of you worry, you know, because there are little ears that are hearing that, and you don't want them to have nightmares, and I don't want them to have nightmares, and so I try to dial it back. Uh, you know, I, I try to maybe not give all the gory details, but, but imagine a church that is uh, uh, more concerned that it not become soft comfortable, Western lifestyle church of people who desire ease and comfort. Imagine a church that is willing to hear these stories, that that longs to hear about the persecuted church, that is inspired by the faith of the persecuted church, that wants to intercede in prayer for the persecuted church, that wants to advocate in the culture for the persecuted church. Imagine a a church of people that are, are more concerned about the suffering and the tears of our spiritual family abroad than we are about our personal comfort and lifestyle. That's a church that's in solidarity with the persecuted church, not a church of religious consumers who are cut off from Christ because they're all about ease, but a church of people who are not blind and not deaf to the call of Christ, but are ready to pick up our own crosses daily and die to follow him. Imagine a church that sees the tears that hears the cries of our brothers and sisters as they're deprived, as they're abused, a church whose heart breaks and aches for their suffering, a church that cries out to God on their behalf, that hears their stories, that that, that knows that these are far better followers of Jesus than we are because they have suffered so greatly for a Savior that they love and that has loved them. To know Christ, Paul speaks, And to know the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. Imagine a church that sits at their feet. Sits at the feet of the persecuted church. Learns from them 
listens to them, learns what it really means to follow Christ. That's a church in solidarity with a persecuted church, a church that sees and hears their stories and learns from them lessons that our theology textbooks can never fully teach us. Jesus says, you're going to have to suffer for me, but don't fear what they can do. It's a test. Its days are limited. Yet to suffer for Jesus to risk your reputation because you talk about God, to risk your financial well-being because you give sacrificially in response to Christ, to risk your relational and perhaps even physical well-being in order to be a faithful representative of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. How can you do that? How is it possible? And all I can tell you is to look to Jesus. Jesus is saying here, look at me. Don't forget I'm here. Remember what I did. He says, I was dead and I am alive again. This is the resurrection hope we spoke of, uh, you know, last week or two. Jesus was the beta version, uh, the beta version of all that is coming soon. He is the first fruit, the Bible says, of the coming harvest. And he says here to his followers that the second death, meaning hell, will have no power over you. He's speaking to people who are facing decisions of life and death, who are looking their wife and their children in the eyes, wondering if they will ever see him again, wondering whether their children will have a dad, or is their child going to have a mom? Is their child going to be raised in the church, or will they be taken? Uh, What's going to happen? These are hard decisions that they have before them, and Jesus is saying, don't worry about that. I used to be dead too, and look at me now. I'm alive, and you are going to overcome this, and you are going to come to life, and you are going to reign with me forever, and I am going to put a crown upon your head. Though you die, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever, whoever hears me and believes me, will, though he die, yet he will live forever. I'm here, he's saying. I was dead. I'm alive again. Look at Jesus. Look what he did have a photo of Polycarp. Well, it's not a photo. They didn't have cameras. It's a photo of a statue of Polycarp that may look nothing like him because it's Renaissance and it's 1,500 years too late, but it's a fantastic statue of Polycarp. Uh, Polycarp was uh, uh, one of the people who would have been receiving this letter that Jesus dictated uh, to the angel of the church uh, in Smyrna. He was, uh, according to historical sources, he had Uh, just recently been installed as the new bishop or senior pastor of the church in Smyrna. He was in his late 20s or maybe 30 at this time. He had been led to Christ by the disciples in Smyrna and had been discipled by the apostle uh, John. Um, And uh, Polycarp here, who, you know, I mean, this letter was actually basically a letter to Polycarp and his church. we have some of his writings. His, his letter to um, the church, uh, uh, well, he was in Smyrna, but he, uh, 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 one of his letters uh, of the church in, in Philadelphia um, shows something of what enabled these early Christians to face death, and they faced death very frequently. Uh, exclusion, if not death, uh, persecution, 
And when you read somebody's letters, you can find out, it's like reading your email, you can find out what really excites you. If you're really excited about a sale at West Elm, it's going to come through in your email. But what you read when you read his writings is somebody who had an incredible power, an incredible tenacity, a readiness to, to face anything unencumbered, and you realize what it was that gave him joy in the midst of his tears. Polycarp writes this. It says, Polycarp and the elders with them to the church of God sojourning at Philippi. Sorry, it's Philippi, not Philadelphia. It says, mercy and peace be multiplied to you from our God Almighty and his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our Savior. He writes, I greatly rejoice with you and our Lord Jesus Christ because you followed the example of true love. You have accompanied, as you should, those who were bound in chains. See that solidarity with the persecuted church. He says, chains are the best ornaments for saints. Chains are the real crown of God's true elect. He writes, the Lord Jesus Christ suffered even to the point of death for our sins. But God raised him from the dead. God released him from the grip of Hades. He's the one that though you don't see him, you believe him. And believing, you rejoice with a joy that's unspeakable and full of glory into this joy. So many long to enter, knowing that it's by grace you're saved, not by works, but by the will of God through Jesus Christ. And he continues to counsel him. Therefore, prepare yourselves for the race. Serve the Lord in fear and truth like people who've forsaken the useless and empty talk and the errors of the many, and believed in the one who raised up our Lord Jesus from the dead and gave him glory and a throne at his right hand. You see, here's a man who could suffer. He was one of the recipients. He was the pastor of this church. Historically, we know that to be true. And he saw Jesus. Or not seeing him, he believed him. He looked to Jesus in his tears and his pain, in his chains. That's where he saw Christ. A Christ who he knew had saved him fully and finally and forever. A Christ who had conquered evil on the cross, carried our debts, paid them in full, and who rose again from death, giving us the certainty that even if we die for Jesus, we're going to live. Because death is not going to be able to, to do anything to us. It can't hold us back. The life comes back. Jesus already died. He came back to life. He's the first fruits. He's the beta model. Jesus is saying, look at me. Remember what I did. I was dead. Now I'm alive. And he says, don't forget who I am. You may not have picked it up unless you started reading in chapter 1. But when Jesus says that he is the first and the last, in chapter 1, God the Father had said, I am the first and the last. And here Jesus is saying, I am the first and the last. And I was dead and now I am alive. It's one of the explicit claims to deity from the lips of Jesus of Nazareth. He's saying, I'm God. I'm the Alpha and Omega. It's my self-designation. I'm the one who has the power to come to your defense. Don't forget who I am. Look at Jesus. And look at him because he's saying here that I really do understand your tears. See, Jesus knows all about this tribulation that's come on these Christians attached to this church in Smyrna. He sees their tears. He understands their tears. His is not a detached knowledge, but a knowledge of compassion, a knowledge of of empathy, a knowledge that could only be had by a man of sorrows who's accompanied with grief. His heart breaks for them. Philip Edgecombe Hughes says this about Jesus. He says, He who has drunk to the last drop the cup of suffering 
and passed through the baptism of blood for our sake has the fullest fellow feeling for us in the trials and adversities that we endure as his servants. He who became poor for our sake knows all about poverty, the deprivation of worldly goods and wealth to which his followers have been driven. Friends, look at Jesus. He knows your tears. He shares your tears. And Jesus says, remember that you are rich. Your sins have been forgiven. You've been given every blessing in the heavenly realms. You've been given the righteousness of Christ as your resume, a resume that is perfect and impeccable because Jesus is the one who earned it for you. And Jesus is saying also that an 11th day is on its way. Ten days of suffering, friends, but the 11th day is coming These ten days of suffering and persecution are not going to last forever. A day is coming when everything is going to be made right, when everything sad will become untrue. Jesus is saying, I'm sovereign over your tears, even the pains of this life, the injuries that you face, and I decree ten days and not eleven. A day is coming when he makes everything new, when Jesus places on your head a crown that will never tarnish, Think of the crown that an athlete would, would receive after winning a race, and that's a crown that you're going to receive, not because you earned it, but because Jesus earned it for you. And he elevates you to the status of victor. He elevates you onto the highest podium. He gives you the gold medal. He gives you the congression, congressional medal of honor. He gives you the access into the corridors of power. He elevates you to the status of nobility by his grace. Friends, I can't give you 10 principles that are going to help you face suffering. I can't give you a program or a plan or a step-by-step method, but I can tell you this. Look to Jesus. He is able. You alone are going to have to face whatever trouble or hardship or tears that are coming your way as a servant of Jesus. But while you alone have to face what comes, you are not going to be alone when you face it. You have Jesus. Look at him. He's a person. He's real. This is not just a guy up front talking about make-believe things that make us feel special. We're talking about a real historical person who rose and is alive and at large on planet Earth today. He's here among us today. Look to Jesus. He is able to save. He's really there. He has the power in the midst of suffering for your faith. He has the power to give you that will enable you to take those risks, the power to sacrifice for what you believe, the power that will enable you to be in solidarity with the persecuted church and to suffer for the sake of following him. Because he's the one who did this for you. He sacrificed and laid down his life so that you could live. We have one last picture here. Um, It's of... uh, uh, Edward VIII, as king, Edward VIII had the life. He was the king of England, king of Scotland and Northern Ireland, the king of South Africa, Australia, New Zealand, and Canada. He was the emperor of all India. He had incredible wealth, had fame and palaces and castles and servants. He had the honor of the people. He had relationships with the richest, most powerful, most famous people on planet Earth. Uh, He had the admiration of the nation and of the empire and much of the world. He was like James Bond. Women wanted to be with him and men wanted to be him. It's good to be the king. And Edward VIII, he had it all. 
And then he fell madly in love with this woman, Wallace Simpson. Wallace had everything against her so far as a relationship with the king would be concerned. Uh, Wallace was a commoner, and therefore she was out of Edward's league. British society would never condone a king being married to a lowly commoner. Maybe a princess or a queen or a duchess or a countess, but a lady of rank and title, a woman with standing. And Wallace Simpson was none of that. Uh, Worse yet, Wallace was an American. She was from Philadelphia, not Roman Philadelphia. Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Across the pond, the former colonies, she was a yank. And the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland is not going to have a yank as queen consort of England and empress of all India. That was never going to happen. But the Berlin Wall between Wallace and Edward VIII was that Wallace was what? A divorcee. She previously had been married not once, but twice. And as king, Edward VIII was also supreme governor of the Church of England. And as such, according to what was then church law, to marry a divorcee was to commit adultery and to be disqualified as king. In fact, Wallace was still married to husband number two when she got involved with Edward. She was cheating. She's morally unsuitable to be queen and empress. She was a 40-year-old double divorcee with two surviving husbands, a woman of loose morals, an American, and a commoner. The shame of it, marriage would be absolutely impossible, and not even the king could change that. It was public scandal. Edward VIII, he was a handsome man. All the ladies, you know, they swooned over him. But uh, about Wallace Simpson, the socialized quipped, besides, she's not even pretty. She was exiled to the south of France. She was put under great pressure. And finally, Wallace Simpson renounced her relationship with King Edward VIII. She broke it off for good. It was over. The king could find someone else. The crisis was averted. Wallace herself had ended the relationship. And then the unthinkable happened. On December 10th, 1936, King Edward VIII of England, Scotland, and Ireland, emperor of all India, shocked the world by announcing his abdication from the throne. He stepped down as king. He left behind palaces and castles. He left the love and admiration of the empire, the honor and the position and the status. He abandoned it all, he said, so that he could marry this adulterous divorcee, American commoner, Wallace. He said he was unwilling to be king, quote, without the help and the support of the woman I love. He ceased to be king, and he became instead the Duke of Windsor, And Wallace Simpson, divorcee in the eyes of the people, an adulterous, a commoner, American, and besides not even pretty, became the Duchess of Windsor and a member of the British aristocracy. You see, you'll do anything when you are madly in love. And if you are madly in love with Jesus, you will do anything, suffer anything, feel any pain, any tear, any tear at your heart and your life if you love him. But the ultimate Duke of Windsor, the original 
Duke of Windsor, is the true king, King Jesus. Because though he was king, he left it all behind, left heaven itself in order to become a slave, and he did it for you. You weren't in his league. You lacked the qualifications. You lacked the status. I know I didn't have nobility. I didn't have the standing. And besides, I'm a divorcee. I'm an adulterer, at least in my heart, one who's been unfaithful and publicly shamed. It was totally inappropriate, and nothing could change that. Sinners, all of us, it would be a scandal. And besides, you weren't even pretty. But Jesus fell madly in love with you, so deeply in love with you that you do crazy things when you're that in love. And he left everything in order to marry the one he loves, his church, his persecuted church. He became nothing so that you, friends, might take your place among the aristocracy and might receive in him a crown. Let's pray. Lord Jesus.